Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. This is fast becoming a way to get up to speed very quickly on the very latest research and new discoveries in myeloma from experts all over the world. If we understand their research, we can make better choices about our care and about joining a clinical trial. If you'd like to hear about our upcoming and past interviews in a weekly email, we invite you to subscribe to our Mpatient Minute newsletter. Just go to the homepage, www.mpatient.org. You can find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages there as well. I am very happy to be talking today with one of those experts who recently had a new discovery about why myeloma keeps coming back, even after aggressive treatment. We have with us today Dr. Roger Tiedemann of the Ontario Cancer Institute and Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto. Welcome, Dr. Tiedemann. Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, it's very nice to be here. Okay, I, before we start, I would like to give everyone a little introduction for you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, Dr. Roger Tiedemann is a scientist at the Ontario Cancer Institute and a hematologist specializing in multiple myeloma and lymphoma within the Division of Medical Oncology and Hematology at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto with appointments in the Department of Medical Biophysics and in the Department of Medicine. Dr. Tiedemann is a New Zealand-trained hematologist and fellow of both the Royal Australasian College of Physicians and the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. Before pursuing medical studies, he was a national representative to the 29th International Mathematics Olympiad, which is very cool. In in 1997, Dr. Tiedemann completed medicine and surgery degrees at the University of Auckland and separately completed a PhD in molecular medicine examining lymphocyte activation by superantigens. In 2005, Dr. Tiedemann moved to the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale as a postdoctoral fellow in multiple myeloma, and in 2006, he won a National Hematology Society of Australia and New Zealand Young Investigator Award. In 2007, he was awarded a North American Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation Fellowship. In 2008, he was appointed to a staff hematologist position at the Mayo Clinic, And from 2009 to 2010, he was an assistant professor in medicine at the Mayo Clinic's College of Medicine. In 2009, he received an Ash Scholar Award in clinical translational research. Dr. Tiedemann's peer-reviewed publications include articles in Cancer Cell, Blood, JCI, Journal of Experimental Medicine, Journal of Immunology, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. He is an author of a U.S. patent application for a new cell cycle therapeutic. His research focus includes multiple myeloma stem and progenitor cells, genomics, and the development of new therapeutic strategies for myeloma based on an understanding of the tumor biology. So we are very, very happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Jeannie. I uh, very much appreciate the invitation. So would you like to start by kind of giving us an overview of your research, or would you like to jump in to this most recent discovery about progenitor cells? Uh, Sure. Well, why don't we start with the most recent discovery and we can go from there. Okay. Um, So basically uh, what we did was we were very interested in understanding why um, we're failing to cure multiple myeloma with current therapies. And we were particularly interested in why um, the drugs known as proteasome inhibitors uh, bortezomib or carfilzomib failed to cure multiple myeloma. Um, previous studies by others had suggested that these drugs uh, inhibit the proteasome and induce stress in myeloma cells in a number of different ways and that perhaps mutations in the binding site um, of the drug to its, uh, in the binding site of the proteasome where the drug binds the proteasome might mediate resistance um, to these drugs, i.e. the tumor cells escape the drug by uh, mutating the site where the drug bound and so the drug no longer had an effect. 
Um, but that work was all done in, in multiple myeloma cell lines, and it turns out that when you look at multiple myeloma patients and, and their tumors, that those mutations weren't there. And so it seemed that there was another mechanism causing uh, what, um, proteasome inhibitor resistance in patients. Um, so we, we tried to investigate for what that mechanism might be. And we had previously done a high-throughput screen of more than 7,000 genes uh, in multiple myeloma cells looking for genes that um, modulated the response of the tumor cells to bortezomib, also known as Valcade. And we reanalyzed that data and looked for genes whose loss rescued the cells from Valcade treatment. And we identified a gene called IRE1. Um, and subsequent work with IRE1 and its downstream signaling gene XBP1 demonstrated that both of these genes could modulate the sensitivity of multiple myeloma tumor cells to um, proteasome inhibitors. And from that point onwards, we, we were able to demonstrate that uh, XBP1 uh, expression in multiple myeloma tumors that are resistant to proteasome inhibitors is reduced. At least the expression of genes that are, that are driven by the expression of XBP1 is reduced. And uh, we explored the mechanism by which, uh, by which IRE1 and XBP1 were modulating Velcade resistance in multiple myeloma. And after a series of experiments, we showed that the mechanism was in fact not directly through the role of these genes in controlling stress within a certain part of the cell called the endoplasmic reticulum, but in fact the role of these genes in modulating the response of myeloma cells to Velcade was in determining the secretory maturation of the tumor cells. So to, to, if I can try and put that simply, these, dream, these genes, IRE1 and XBP1, drive the maturation, um, the development of the multiple myeloma plasma cells and promote the secretion of the immunoglobulin, which we measure in clinical tests as an M-spike. Mm -hmm. um, and that by taking away these genes from the tumor cells, um, the tumor cells started to look different. They didn't make um, this immunoglobulin or M-spike any longer. And as a result, these cells were less stressed. Um, and when we threw in drugs like bortezomib, um, the cells didn't respond with the same level of stress any longer. And so it appears that um, by unstressing the cells, by taking away this IRE1 and XBP1 gene, genes, um, that we could make the cells uh, relatively resistant to proteasome inhibition um, by drugs like Valcade and Carfilzomib. Now, I and have so, a question. Are, are sure. these two genes um, expressed from everybody with myeloma or certain types or just across the board? Right, so that's, that's a great question. So it, it turns out that these genes are just expressed in the plasma cells and the plasma blasts of multiple myeloma tumors. So what our work also showed is that multiple myeloma tumors consist not only of plasma cells and plasma blasts, but also of earlier progenitor cells that don't express activated XBP1. And uh, I, I think this was an important um, finding from our work. Um, so, what, what, um, and it, so what our work shows is that um, in addition to the plasma cells and plasma blasts that we commonly see under the microscope in patients with multiple myeloma tumors in their bone marrow, there also exist rare progenitor cells, earlier versions of those cells which haven't yet matured into plasma cells, um, which, are less which are less sensitive to drugs like proteasome inhibitors. Um, and the reason that they're less sensitive is that they're not making immunoglobulin, their endoplasmic reticulum, the part of the cell that makes the, the immunoglobulin, the M-spike, um, is not really ramped up or geared up to, into production uh, in these earlier stage cells. And so those cells are just less sensitive to the drug. And in fact, we believe that all patients with multiple myeloma, all myeloma tumors, have these progenitor cells, and that when we target multiple myeloma with drugs like the proteasome inhibitors, Valcade, um, we just fail to hit that, these early populations of cells, and so we ultimately 
end up killing the more common differentiated cells that we see under the microscope, but not the earlier progenitor cells. So can you describe what the difference is between a progenitor cell and a regular stem cell? Right. So a stem cell has certain implications. Um, a stem cell is something that can self-renew uh, almost endlessly. And as a result of that, uh, as a result of asymmetric renewal, where uh, when the cell divides, one cell, one daughter cell becomes another stem cell, but another daughter cell becomes a, um, a progenitor cell. It can go on to ultimately mature into a, some form of mature tissue cell. Um, so stem cells are, if you imagine a hierarchy, um, where at the bottom of the hierarchy there's a lot of mature tissue cells like plasma cells or multiple myeloma plasma cells. At the very top of the hierarchy is you know, one or only a couple of stem cells that um, drive the proliferation of uh, multiple levels of progenitor cells and ultimately plasma cells at the bottom of that hierarchy. And so stem cells have a lot of connotations. We avoided the term in our paper because you know, we hadn't done the work to demonstrate that what we were looking at were in fact stem cells. And I think a lot more work needs to be done on this in multiple myeloma and in, and in other cancers as well to define you know, what is a stem cell and at what level how, you know, how many of these progenitor levels have properties of self-renewal and to what extent. So one question that we have in the cancer biology field is if you took out the stem cell with a drug that just, just got rid of the stem cell, how long would it take for the rest of the tumor to involute and die on itself because it didn't have that basic route to the, route to the system? Um, and it might be that you know, that would, could be quite a long time because the other progenitor levels might have quite substantial self-renewing properties. Um, or it might be that you, know, you got rid of the stem cell and within a couple of months the, the rest of the tumor was all gone as well. So I think that kind of question has not yet been answered in multiple myeloma and in fact in most other cancers either. And that's a question to answer in the lab, right? Right, that's going to be something that's really going to have to be worked out in the lab with very uh, carefully done experiments. Okay. And so I think, I think it's a very important question because ultimately that's going to lead us to where we should be designing drugs to cure multiple myeloma. Should we be targeting the stem cell or, or the progenitors or just the plasma cells? I think the answer is that tr targeting just the plasma cells is not enough to achieve a cure. We do need to go to earlier stages. Are there any drugs out there that target stem cells or progenitor cells right now? There are, there are a number of uh, drugs out there that have attempted to target stem cells um, through you know, identify, identifying the characteristics of the stem cells and then targeting the pathways that appear to be important in them, none of which, uh, as yet I'm aware of, has shown benefit in a clinical setting, um, certainly in multiple myeloma. So I think more work needs to be done to identify uh, exactly what we need to target in a stem cell and in a progenitor cell to you know, properly eradicate these populations. Okay, and if um, these cells are resisting proteasome inhibitors, then um, there was something else that I was, well, and you kind of likened this to the weed analogy. That Right, right. Can you explain that for people who have not read the paper? Sure, sure. So if, if you think of multiple myeloma as a weed, and certainly that's the way I do think of it, um, then, you know, plasma cells, or what we see under the microscope, which is predominantly plasma cells, are like the flowers on the weed and the leaves. You know, they're, they're the, the thing that we see most frequently. But there are progenitor cells, which are like the roots, and we don't get to see them uh, quite as easily. Um, and if you like, you can think of the stem cell as a seed that, you know, it leads to the original growth of the plant in the first place. And then if you think of proteasome inhibitors like a goat, um, a persnickety goat that comes along and eats the weed, but it really only just likes the flowers and the leaves and it leaves the roots behind. Um, so the proteasome inhibitor or the goat then moves on to the next uh, weed and the roots are left behind, uh, allowing the tumor to regrow. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think we need drugs that target the roots or the progenitor cells um, so that we manage to eradicate the weed altogether. Well, I agree. So, uh, 
So with proteasome inhibitors, why can they be effective for a period of time and then at some point they're not anymore? Is there is there any indication about why, for timing purposes, why they might work for a while and then not? Great question. So we think that when, when we talk about proteasome inhibitor resistance, there are actually at least two major forms of resistance. The first is intrinsic resistance. This is a resistance that we believe is present in tumors from the get-go. And when we treat a patient initially with uh, a proteasome inhibitor, we, we don't cure that patient from the get-go. And that is because of intrinsic resistance, which we believe reflects the presence of progenitor cells that are just intrinsically resistant to uh, proteasome inhibition. And then there's a second class of resistance that I'd like to call secondary resistance or acquired resistance, where after a certain amount of time of treatment on a proteasome inhibitor or after a certain number of courses of retreatment with a proteasome inhibitor, a patient might find that their tumor becomes resistant to proteasome inhibitors. And it seems there that that uh, mechanism may in some cases be different to the resistance mechanism that we're describing, but in some cases it may be that the myeloma tumor has developed a maturation arrest, meaning that the tumor cells no longer mature all the way through to being plasma cells, but now they stop maturing at an earlier stage like a pre-plasma blast or, or even a B cell, activated B cell stage. And now those progenitor cells, as we've demonstrated, are less resistant to proteasome in, inhibition. And if tumors maturation arrest like that, then they're able to escape proteasome inhibitors and grow on treatment. And that's, so that acquired maturation arrest might, um, might enable the phenomenon that you're describing, which is progression on treatment. But I believe there may be other mechanisms as well that also promote the secondary um, proteasome inhibitor resistance. And I know there's sort of a debate when it comes to transplantation. Some doctors will say, well, gosh, you don't want to treat really heavily before a transplant because if you do, then you have resistance to those therapies. And some some say it kind of take a wait and see, and they start with the combination therapies, including the proteasome inhibitors, and then do a transplant later. Do you have an opinion on that based on your experience now with these um, progenitor cells? Right. I think it's a, it's a really complicated question, and it's one that's very difficult to answer from a theoretical basis. It's one that's better asked by clinical trials, uh, answered by clinical trials, because, you know, there's so many factors that go into whether by keeping the population down with additional treatment, you know, that might diminish the emergence of a resistant clone, or alternatively that might open up the niche for the emergence of a resistant clone and you're providing a selective pressure for the development of resistance. So theoretically you could argue it either way, but I think the only answer will come from clinical studies. And, you know, some studies are ongoing looking at that type of question as to how many cycles of treatment are required prior to transplant or is transplant required at all. Um, mm-hmm. But at the moment I think the answer is yes and our approach is to try and um, give several cycles of treatment to get the patient uh, to, you know, to deal with the issues that have arisen at presentation and get the patient in a better state and get the tumor under control a bit before we go to transplant. And that's, that's, that's partly a pragmatic approach as much as anything. And it sounds like proteasome inhibitors, even though they might not cure myeloma, are still a really important drug class right, in right. myeloma. Yeah, no, so we, were, we studied proteasome inhibitors and resistant mechanisms primarily for the reason that, that these are one of the most important class of drugs for the management of myeloma, and I think they still are. Um, so I, I think they're excellent at suppressing the end stage of the tumor growth, the plasma cells and the plasma blasts, and, and for preventing complications because essentially they keep cropping off the weed, you know, um, as soon as it emerges out of the ground. Um, so by staying on proteasome inhibitors and keeping the weed at bay, um, you know, you can still, uh, patients can still do extremely well. And I know everybody's using them. <laughs> so right. um, in your article, you mentioned that it, this discovery had implication for new clinical trials that could be run sort of quickly. And what do you hope that next stage of clinical trial does with this new information. Right, so I think because we can identify these progenitor cells and the, and the sort of the method for doing that is in our paper, we can 
um, measure the amount of progenitor cells in any patient um, bone marrow and we can put patients onto clinical trials where we test any existing drug or any new drug for their ability to attack these progenitor cells and to reduce their frequency in the patient's bone marrow. And so we can quickly move to clinical studies and look for evidence that drugs do target these progenitor cells. We can start screening drugs in this process. And when we identify drugs that do target progenitor cells, then we can combine them with drugs like Velcade that target more mature tumor cells and come up with a combination that really hits the tumor across the board. And how do you go about screening drugs? Well, it seems like uh, it'd be kind of complicated. <laughs> right. I think the best way would be to do it, you know, in a uh, laboratory setting first, and then to take the most promising drugs to clinical trials. So, you know, we could screen a number of drugs against patient bone marrows in vitro in the lab, and then look at their effect on progenitor cells, um, and then uh, take the most promising drugs. Um, put them into patients at known doses if they're known drugs and look and see whether this uh, takes away the progenitor cell population. Um, also, we're working on developing some, in, some better in vitro models of progenitor cells. So at the moment, when we work with progenitor cells, we really have to get those cells from patients because we don't really have any good um, corresponding uh, model systems in the lab to work with, and we would like to develop some some. Um, models in the lab of progenitor cells so that we can do bigger and better high-throughput screens um, to work out the vulnerabilities of these progenitor cells. And is that done with a bone marrow biopsy? So at the moment we're doing all our work on um, primary patient material which comes from a bone marrow biopsy. So all of the work that was uh, included in our paper um, came from patients that um, agreed to go on uh, one of my clinical studies uh, where we collect bone marrow samples from patients and uh, correlate that with drug response. And um, I'm very grateful to all the patients that participated. I think they really made a big difference. And how many patient samples would be considered sufficient for you? I'm just curious. Um, well, we have a limited ability to process them. Uh, each, each sample that we process, we have to run through a flow sorter machine, and then we do um, fish analysis and analyses and immunofluorescence on multiple different subpopulations. So that's actually quite labor-intensive. Um, but we typically process a couple a week, um, and I think that's been very helpful in us trying to get a better understanding of myeloma biology. And as somebody who's been studying the early stages of myeloma for a long time, do we know what causes myeloma or certain subtypes of myeloma, or could it could myeloma has myeloma ever been created in vitro by anybody? Um, to answer the last question first, has it been treated in vitro? There's been a lot of work done looking at treating multiple myeloma cell lines or plasma cells from patients with various different drugs. And uh, a lot of that work often precedes the introduction of a drug into the clinic and a clinical study. So a lot of um, new anti-cancer drugs um, that may not have been designed for myeloma go through that process of being screened to see whether they are, in fact, active against myeloma cells in vitro. Oh, I, um, my, question, my question is, has it ever been created in vitro? Oh, has it ever been created in vitro? Yeah. So um, there's an animal model of multiple myeloma um, in mice um, developed by Leif Bergsegel and Marta Chasey uh, at Mayo Clinic. And I think that's the best model of uh, multiple myeloma that we have outside of patients. Um, beyond that, we've got myeloma cell lines that have been immortalized and grow in culture in the lab, but those are you know, derived from, from patients. Oh, okay, so can we go backwards to my other question? Do we know what we what causes myeloma? Um, in a sense, yes, and in, in another sense, no. So um, there's been some very good work from uh, Sandra Grass in, in Hamburg, Germany, that has shown that in familial cases of myeloma, so where multiple family members have myeloma, which is rare but does occur, um, that it appears that chronic autoimmune stimulation or chronic activation of immune response underlies um, the development of uh, the myeloma clone. So they were able to show that um, in those patients, um, the multiple myeloma was always 
producing an antibody or an M spike that was targeted against a self antigen. So it was something that was reacting against the host's body. And in fact, what they showed was that in um, family members who had multiple myeloma, um, they were all reacting against the same antigen. And in fact, even in sporadic multiple myeloma, where um, where there may be no known family members with multiple myeloma, some of those multiple myelomas are also developing an M-spike that is reactive against these same autoantigens. And so it appears that chronic immune stimulation and a chronic immune response against an autoantigen is the initiating event, perhaps, in myeloma. And Ola Langren uh, at the NIH has shown that MGUS always precedes multiple myeloma, so we can see this chronic immune stimulation and the development of a clone um, that produces this autoreactive antibody. And then um, Leif Bergsagel and Marta Chasey and Mike Keel and others have shown a number of recurrent genetic mutations that arise in, in MGUS and which are carried through to multiple myeloma. So there are a number of recurrent chromosomal translocations that we see even at the early MGUS stage and then are carried through to multiple myeloma. And uh, Leif Bergsagel and others has demonstrated, in fact, that it appears that dysregulation of a gene called MYC may be critical in the progression from MGUS to multiple myeloma. So we have a bit of an understanding as to what's going on at the genetic level and, and um, the immunology level in terms of myeloma development. But if any patient came to me and said, can you tell me what caused my myeloma, uh, I couldn't answer that. And trying mm -hmm. to answer that would be like trying to look at an avalanche where a billion cells have all fallen down a mountain and trying to work out what made the first, uh, a billion rocks have all fallen down a mountain, trying to work out what the first rock, what made the first rock start tumbling yeah. down the mountain. Um, it's very difficult. And a, a follow-up question, I guess, when you're talking about genetics, do we know if certain genes, like the MIK one that you just mentioned, create certain translocations? Has there been any work to study a particular gene and a particular translocation, like a 414 or an 1114? Right. No, there's been a lot of work done on that. Um, so the recurrent uh, translocations that you mentioned, um, you know, 1114 dysregulates a gene called cyclin D1, which is important in making the cells start to proliferate. So those cells, you know, it dysregulates a checkpoint in, in the um, cell biology that would normally stop the cell from growing and now the cell is able to grow and proliferate. Um, you know, one of the other translocations, um, the 414 translocation, dysregulates a gene called MMSET, uh, which is a gene that um, puts marks, it's a gene that produces a protein, and that protein puts marks on other genes to switch them on or off. And so by dysregulating that one gene, MMSET, you actually end up dysregulating a whole bunch of genes throughout the uh, genome of the tumor cell, and that may uh, enable it to dysregulate its growth. And MYC itself can be, um, that's the MYC gene, um, can be dysregulated by translocation, but often it's dysregulated, it appears, by other mechanisms as well. Wow, well, it's, it's complicated, but it would be nice to get it subdivided eventually. <laughs> and so, right, so I, th I think at this stage we can say there's, you know, there's at least eight different types of myeloma based on different primary genetic events. Um, that are consistent in that patient. So what I mean by that is that, um, you know, at first presentation and that relapse and later relapse, that genetic event is present in all of the tumor cells. Um, and there, there are at least eight different genetic events that we see in different patients like that. And, and can you, is it, would it take too much time to go through the eight just quickly? Uh, sure. I mean, they, they were, uh, again, described mainly by... Uh, Bergsegel and Marta Chasey, so part of the uh, what we call the TC class of myeloma or translocation, uh, uh, translocation hyperdiploidy. So in essence, there are the recurrent um, chromosome translocations. There's T1114, which dysregulates cyclin D1. Um, there's T414, which dysregulates some, a gene called FGFR3 and also the other gene MMSET. Um, there's T1416, which is a translocation between four, chromosomes 14 and 16, and which dysregulates a transcription factor called MAF. Um, there's another translocation that dysregulates another of the cyclin D genes, cyclin D3. 
Um, and then there, that makes up about half of all cases, those translocations make up about half of all cases of multiple myeloma, and then the other half of uh, cases of myeloma tend to have something called hyperdiploidy, meaning that their tumor cells have extra copies of chromosomes, often three or four copies with, uh, of odd-numbered chromosomes where they should only have two copies of those chromosomes. And um, hyper, the hyperdiploid group of multiple myeloma can be further subdivided as to whether they dysregulate the cyclin D1 gene or the cyclin D2 gene or both. Um, so in essence, that breakdown, you know, that simple system breaks down myeloma into, you know, eight different recurrent um, subtypes that we see recurrently occur in patients. Okay, that's great. Thank you for going through that, and I hope it's not too sure. technical for everybody. But I think it's kind sure. of important to know. No, no, I think it's kind of important to understand what type do I have, so I can start looking for things that are. Uh, and it goes to diagnostics, and we've been talking a lot about diagnostics. So right, you know, and I think uh, it has a lot of prognostic in, uh, information. Um, so some types do better, some types do worse, and um, you know, some groups are looking at um, tailoring treatment based on these different subtypes. So trying to, you know, give more intensive treatment to patients who myeloma might be otherwise more aggressive. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I've done some a little bit of homework and looked at part of your research where there was something called XPO1 and how right. it grows from MGUS to full-blown myeloma. Can you kind of describe what, what that is and how that works? Right, XPO1. So we came across uh, XPO1, also known as CREM1 or CRM1, uh, initially from a high-throughput RNA interference screen. So what that means is uh, we did this screen using myeloma cells. We sequentially treated, uh, we treated uh, aliquots of myeloma cells with um, a type of biological reagent called an siRNA, which knocks down a single gene. And we did that in seven or eight thousand different, um, for seven or eight thousand different genes. And we looked to see which genes were most important for sustaining the viability and growth of the myeloma tumor cells. And Ultimately, we came down to a short list of uh, 30 or 40 um, genes that were critical for maintaining the growth of this particular uh, myeloma cell line, and XPO1 was one of those genes. So it, it appeared that when you knocked down, when you inhibited this XPO1 in the myeloma cells, the, the cells um, promptly died, um, and so it, it appeared to be a potential target. Um, for inhibition to treat myeloma. And in fact, when we knocked down the gene in some normal cells, it appeared to have less effect. So there, there appeared to be a, a therapeutic window for inhibiting the gene to get some death of myeloma cells and, and, and um, without affecting the normal cells. And then, so further work has been done uh, by Keith Stewart um, and by the group at Dana-Farber looking at um, an XPO1 inhibitor that has been developed. Um, the the version that's used in the lab is called KPT-276, and the version that's used in the clinic is called KPT-330. And these are uh, drugs now that inhibit XPO1 or CREM1. And what the drugs do is they inhibit this protein called XPO1, which exports um, proteins out of the nucleus or the brain of the myeloma cell. So if you think of um, the nucleus of the myeloma cell as the brain, then XPO1 is a little bit like the central is a little bit like the spinal column. It, it transmits the signals um, out to the rest of the cell. It exports um, some of the proteins out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm. And so, when you inhibit XPO1, you inhibit that transport, and you markedly uh, interfere with the, the biology of the cell. And you know, um, these drug uh, the KPT330 is now in a phase one clinical study um, for multiple myeloma and for a lymphoma. Um, and you know, at our centre, we've already had uh, one or two patients with a response to this drug. Although that's speaking from the lymphoma side, I don't have much experience in multiple myeloma with it yet. Hmm. Well, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. How we can start targeting a particular gene and then find an inhibitor for that gene. Right. So right, I think. That's the way that drug development has moved over the last decade or so, is is very rational design of drugs based on an understanding of the biology of the tumor cells. 
Mm-hmm. And you mentioned an RNA screen, so can, maybe we can go back to 10th grade biology. <laughs> and, sure. And, and you can explain the difference between DNA and RNA and what, why you're screening RNA. Sure. So <clears throat> DNA is, is, a, uh, is a copy of the uh, – DNA is, is how our genes are encoded. So our genetic information is all encoded on this double-stranded helix called DNA, which is segmented up into – uh, 46 chromosomes in the nucleus and um, that's where the information uh, all our bio, all our genetic information resides but in itself that um, that DNA is relatively inert and it needs to get its message out to the cell to tell the cell what to do what proteins to make how to perform and so it makes uh, another molecule called messenger RNA um, and this RNA is, is a transcribed version of the DNA that um, is tran- transcribed in the uh, nucleus and then, uh, then it moves out into the cytoplasm or the endoplasmic reticulum where it's um, translated and uh, translated into a protein. So that mRNA brings out the message from the DNA to another part of the cell where it directs the production of a protein. And it's really proteins that make the structure of the cell and um, perform all the functions of the cell. And so, you know, whereas the DNA is the brain, the protein is the muscle. Uh, and the mRNA is, is the messenger in between. And so when we do an RNAi screen, what we do is we take complementary RNA um, that bind to the messenger RNA and take it out of action. Um, they basically, they're like um, the antisense of it, uh, of the messenger RNA. Um, they bind to it and through a, uh, and causes degradation. And so that messenger RNA no longer exists. And it's like the gene from that messenger RNA is not being expressed. It's like switching off the gene. And so we can see what happens to the cell when we switch off one gene at a time um, using these um, RNA interference techniques. So you're basically killing the messenger. <laughs> we're, we're killing the messenger, but only one messenger at a time, and there's lots of them bouncing around in there. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's great. Okay, and what do you think we need to do to get to more genetic-specific type treatment? What else do you think needs to happen? <clears throat> uh, well, what we would like to do, I think, you know, genetic-specific treatment is great, and I think that's certainly... Um, where the field is headed, but also I think we need to be able to address progenitor cells in a more broad sense. And so what we would like to do is RNA interference screens in progenitor cells and identify the vulnerability of those cells, as well as uh, you know drug screens in those progenitor cells, just to get some sense of you know what the best um, therapeutic strategies might be to deal with these things. Um, and equally, we have done uh, RNAi screens in different in the different genetic subtypes of myeloma so that we have some emerging sense of you know, what the different subtypes are more vulnerable to in order that we could develop drugs specific for one sub- subtype or another. All right, that's a great direction to head. So would you like to discuss your, um, your open clinical trials? And I know that you have some and you can just select which one you'd like to, which one or ones you'd like to tell us about. Sure, sure. Um, well, the two I, I could mention are the, the Carrier Farm study of the KPT-330, so that's the uh, XPO1 CREM1 inhibitor. Um, uh, that inhibitor is just in a phase one study at the moment, so a dose-finding study, um, but a, you know, a therapeutic dose level appears to have been achieved now uh, as, as an early part of that uh, phase one study. And so patients with relapsed refractory myeloma who are interested in a new drug, a new class of drugs, um, might be eligible for a phase one study of this of this drug, and it's open at uh, a number of different centres, including our own. Uh, and then the other study that we have uh, across Canada actually is the MCRN001 study. This is a um, study for newly diagnosed patients, and we're comparing um, transplant conditioning using either the standard of care, which is Melphalan 200 milligrams per meter squared, or um, a combination conditioning regimen consisting of um, busulfan and melphalan together. And the reason that we're doing that is that a number of studies have demonstrated that busulfan has activity against myeloma cells. And in previous 
transplant studies in multiple myeloma, it appeared that when you combined busulfan with melphalan, you got more durable responses in patients. So their myeloma went away for longer after the transplant. However, in the initial studies, there was more toxicity with combining the two drugs together, and that tended to balance out any benefit for the treatment. But when busulfan was initially given, um, there was no monitoring of the dose levels. It was a very standardized dose that was given to everyone, um, and that led to more toxicity. And since that time, um, we've developed a better understanding of how to give busulfan. We can measure the blood levels, and we can dose adjust in individual patients and uh, get the dose much, uh, get the dose uh, 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 less toxic to patients. So. Uh, we believe that we can give the two drugs with less toxicity and still achieve that longer response duration. And so that's what the study is uh, designed to do. And I think uh, taking forward uh, the work with the progenitor cells that we described earlier, um, we are, you know, as part of the study, we're receiving um, patient bone marrows, um, both at diagnosis and then after a Valcade-based induction and then after this transplant with melphalan and, and busulfan. And... You know, we hope to be able to look for the progenitor cells um, after the transplant and see whether those progenitor cells are being hit by the busulfan-melphalan combination. Uh, because I think one reason why this combination of drugs might give longer-term responses is, is that perhaps the combination is uh, eating more into the progenitor level of, of the myeloma rather than just the plasma cells. And, that, and therefore, by knocking down the progenitor cells um, to a lower level, that may give a more durable response. So I think one early outcome measure that we can take from this study might be what's happening to the minimal residual disease, minimal residual myeloma that's left behind after transplant, you know, both in the plasma cell compartment and in the um, progenitor cell compartment. Is that how you tell if the progenitor cells are still lurking around? Is the minimal residual disease test? Right. So I think um, previous um, attempts to look at minimal residual disease in myeloma have focused largely on plasma cells, although there is a PCR-based test that probably doesn't care whether it's looking at plasma cells or progenitor cells. Um, but I think our work now lets us look specifically at progenitor cells, and uh, so we want to take that forward and apply it to clinical studies, and this is probably the first one that we're going to apply it to, that we are applying it to, um, by looking at progenitor cells before and after this form of transplantation. And was Busulfan, am I saying that right? Was that has that been used in myeloma by, by itself somewhere also? Because I've seen that name before, but I'm not that right. familiar with it. No, it has been used in a number of uh, different um, myeloma studies in the past, and uh, I think the focus of the uh, work with busulfan has uh, has ultimately led to its combination with melphalan for high dose therapy prior to stem cell transplant. That that appears to be uh, where it would, would be most effective. And, you know, the studies that have been done to date have been promising in that patients did achieve longer responses, but uh, we've needed to, I think we need to overcome the toxicity issue first before we can turn around and say this is a better therapy um, than, than the standard of care at present. And so, you know, this current trial is aimed at uh, minimizing that toxicity by doing um, protocolized blood tests on patients, measuring the busulfan levels, adjusting the levels appropriately so that everyone's getting an appropriate dose. And uh, by minimizing that toxicity and yet still hopefully achieving the longer-term responses, I think we will make it a better, a better treatment. And then, you know, I think that it will take many years to know whether or not uh, it is in fact a better treatment and gives longer-term responses, but within several months of patients coming out from transplant, we'll be able to tell whether or not their progenitor cell numbers are down. You know, have we managed to um, diminish those numbers more than a standard transplant? And I, so that'll be an early outcome measure um, that we can look at from the study. Well, that's a nice way that it seems like to do two things at once. Right. Yeah, we can do both. Uh, and why not? Um, we, we'd like an early answer. And of course, we'll continue to follow the patients. And over time, we'll get an idea of whether it was, in fact, a better treatment or not. Um, but we'll get an early look, I think, at the progenitor cells um, from day one. That's great. All right. Well, I don't want to take too much time with my own questions because I know there are other questions, um, both via email and other callers. So I have one last question. What does clinical trial participation 
mean to you and your research? What, what could that do for you if we were to increase that? Right. Well, I think moving forward in multiple myeloma you know, requires an involvement in clinical studies um, from patients um, because we will make no progress unless patients uh, go into clinical studies. Uh, for my own research, you know, it's all based on patient samples. Unfortunately, the best way to study myeloma is to have myeloma tumor cells in the lab that we can study, and you know, it's, it's only through the generosity of patients in providing that material that we've been able to understand Velcade resistance in myeloma in the way that we've, uh, we have. Um, so I think it's critical for understanding the biology of myeloma, for um, developing concepts that will allow us to develop new drugs for myeloma, and then it's critical for testing out those new drugs. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's the patients themselves that benefit from you know, the work that has gone on before and the work that will follow uh, as a result of, of being involved in a clinical study. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for answering that question and for such a great explanation about your research. So we'd Thanks. like to open it up for caller questions. So if you have any questions about Dr. Tiedemann's research, you can call 347-637-2631. And if you have a question, you can press 1 on your keypad. Okay, our first caller is 949-5572. Go ahead. Oh, oh hi, Jamie. Hi, Dr. Tiedemann. Hi. Whoa, this has been a great interview. Um, first of all, Jenny, you're, you're living proof that chemo brain can be overcome. <laughs> I, still ha I still have it. <laughs> no, no. Pretty, pretty amazing questions and answers. And Dr. Tiedemann, thank you for, for dumbing this down for us and bringing it, uh, taking very sophisticated concepts and, and making them understandable. Oh, so uh, probably one of the most helpful interviews on the subject that I've, I've heard. Um, so, Dr. Tiedemann, now, how would someone go about, this is my question, how would someone go about creating a clinical trial across multiple kinds of cancers, but specific to one gene mutation? And I, don't, I don't know if this is a fair question for you, but um, if you're targeting a specific gene mutation, but maybe it, it, might be, it might be displayed in different types of cancers, is there such a clinical trial across cancers, or is, are you always just targeting a specific cancer? It's a, it's a great question, and, uh, you know, those kind of studies are coming about, um, and I think this is something that you know, the drug companies have been themselves interested in doing, and a number of, you know, oncology centers are, are pursuing actively. Um, because, uh, you know, as we move forward with drugs that target specific gene mutations or specific pathways, they may, those drugs may be um, active in subgroups of many different types of cancers where that particular pathway is dysregulated in that subgroup of that cancer. And so I think um, rather than just targeting one cancer across the board in a sort of um, a random way um, with a drug, it, you know, it makes a lot more sense to target patients with different cancers that all have activation of that particular pathway that the drug activates. And, you know, I think regulatory authorities are open to the concept, and I've seen one or two studies that have been done that way, and there's more coming. I think, you know, within... <clears throat> it's, it's been done a lot already within, um, say... Uh, related cancers, so hematologic malignancies or, uh, you know, closely related solid cancers. Um, but, it, you know, it could be done even more across the board where a gene may be involved in breast cancer and may be involved in myeloma. You know, there may be such genes and it would be, I don't think we need to limit ourselves based on, uh, at least initially, based on looking at a single uh, cancer. Well, at, at the, at, at the end of the day, though, you're going to have to compare that drug with the standard of care for that cancer, and the standard of care differs across cancers. So as you get more and more uh, towards uh, you know, determining whether the drug is actually benefit, benefiting patients in that one cancer, you're going to have to develop trials that become more and more specific. Yeah, I mean, it's just a different way of thinking about it as opposed to a location-based cancer. It's my, right. that, that mutation happened to be located in my kidney or my stomach, or, or breast or some or brain, and but it's this, it's the same mutation. So why 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 are we calling? You know, does it make sense that rather than say it's a it's a, a location-based cancer, it's a mutation-type cancer? And and our naming conventions maybe have blinded us from seeing these things more accurately. 
So it's what you've just described as personalized cancer medicine. You know, it's the basis of that, and that's, uh, that's the main thrust, I think, of uh, where the field is moving. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your question and for the great answer. So we had another um, question, but from email, and this is a question from Carolyn, and she asks, if my doctor doesn't talk about clinical trials, then does that mean they're not right for me? How would you answer the question? Uh, well, that, that depends. Um, some doctors don't get involved in clinical studies or don't promote them, um, so it could just be an issue with the doctor. On the other hand, uh, often there aren't clinical trials that are open in the neighborhood near you that might be appropriate to your stage of your cancer. So clinical studies in newly diagnosed myeloma are far fewer um, uh, there are less of them than uh, clinical studies uh, in relapsed refractory myeloma, um, which are generally open just about anywhere that you know has an academic center because there's always a need for clinical studies in that population group. Um, so it, it could be could be either of those scenarios. Either your doctor's quite not not necessarily interested in clinical studies, or perhaps um, you know if you're newly diagnosed or, or doing well with a standard of care treatment, perhaps you don't need to be on a clinical study just yet. And without, um, I know that doctors and patients have great relationships with one another. So right. without, um, I guess, disrespecting your doctor in any way, should you think about participating if, in a clinical trial somewhere else if it ever looked interesting enough? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think uh, if there was something that um, appeared appropriate to you, and often that's something that's quite hard to determine just by looking you know at the headline for the clinical study often there's a lot of fine print that goes into these clinical studies as to who can go on them and at what stage their myeloma has to be at but I think uh, if you're interested in enrolling in a clinical study you can of course always discuss it with your physician and um, if you're not satisfied with the response you could always get a second opinion um, but I, I know Jenny that you're going to be working on putting together a clinical trials website um, that may be a little bit more accessible to myeloma patients, and I think that could be a, a first port of call once that's up and running. Otherwise, there's always clinicaltrials.gov, but it's, as you know, quite difficult to navigate through there. Oh, yes. Well, there are 540 open right. clinical trials <laughs> right. I know. on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, well, Dr. Tiedemann, we, were, we are so grateful that you are participating today. And we're so thankful for your great work in the field of myeloma. We wish you the best in continuing your excellent research and your work. Well, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, Jeannie. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next inpatient radio interview as we learn more about how we can help drive cure for myeloma. <laughs>